listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know what? I'm fond of reminding people of the famous J.P. Morgan line that you can ignore politics, economics, and finance. Problem is, they're not going to ignore you. I'm smiling. I mean, that's like a a bit self-serving, isn't it? Like an ad for Money Talks as we deal with all of those subjects. I mean, so of course, I think all of us should be paying attention. I know you are for joining us here, but all of us should be. Tell your friends, family, that kind of thing. Because I have never think it's more important than what's happening today. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Come on, the Bank of Canada is actually working hard to lower our net worth. They're not surprised. Raise interest rates. Your house price went down. Our stocks, our pensions all went down. It's big time. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who have not been paying attention and they wake up and, oh, gosh, my house is worth 15 to 20 percent less in seven months. My RSP is worth less or maybe my pensions, that kind of stuff. But my point is that rarely has it ever been more important that government policy or obvious rather that government policy has impacted our personal finances so directly. I mean, we, we all face that increase in interest rates, increased costs of, well, virtually everything we buy, ever-increasing taxes we pay, higher costs for gas. I mean, gosh, we had that record this week in Vancouver, North American record. Are you kidding me? Of course, other energy products too. Our groceries are all a result of government policy. That's why we have to pay attention. As I say, I know you are, but family, friends, get them involved here. I mean, we're also watching the decline of the Canadian dollar uh, versus the U.S. Well, anybody who's planning to plan, uh, travel in the winter has now found out that that just got more exp- expensive, and so does anything we import from the States. It just feels like everywhere we look, we're taking a hit financially. Now, I, you know, when paying attention, I don't know where you were at with this, but I think most of us you know, when the pollster phoned and said, hey, what about that climate agenda? We said, yeah, that's one of our top concerns. But I don't know how many of us actually paid more attention to it. Like, what does that mean? I also wonder how many people in the country understand that Canada is only responsible for 1.6% of global emissions. Christopher Freeland, you know, the deputy prime minister, finance minister, told the Financial Times, wouldn't matter what Canada does, it can't move the dial. You know, a while ago, I asked for a cost-benefit analysis of various climate policies. Let me just say, asking climate activists, politicians, and their media allies for a cost-benefit analysis like showing a cross to a vampire. So back to that J.P. Morgan warning. I mean, we can ignore energy policy, but as we now see, we got higher prices for diesel, gas, home heating oil for years to come. It's not going to ignore all of us. I love this, though, by the author of the Pitchfork Letter, Stephen Wilkinson, whom we're going to hear from again in our quote of the week. But he had an interesting take on the financial environment we're living in. In quotes, I think we, and by we, I mean our generation of middle-class beneficiaries of post-war peace, munificence, and the U.S. military protection guarantee, which effectively allowed us to get on with making money, increasing our prosperity, traveling the globe, ratcheting up our expenditure levels, without worrying about the sort of stuff that every single generation before us had to worry about. War, destruction, confiscation of property, disease, tyranny. Well, we're awakening to the fact that our Goldilocks economy and peacetime stability is at an end, and we're being confronted with the compound effects of the stuff to which we weren't paying attention. And that's my point here. I think he's right on, by the way. But it wasn't just the no fossil fuels climate slash energy policy. 
that's now proving so disastrous financially and geopolitically with the EU financing Putin's invasion. No, he goes on to acknowledge the danger of deficits and the money grows on trees mentality. He says, in quote, willfully ignoring the continuation of deficits and their debt funding in all Western governments and the let's kick it down the road mentality, we allowed our political class to adopt because we wanted our social stability enabling us to get on with our carefree prosperity spree without worrying too much about the others, satisfying ourselves that we were doing our bit by putting potato peelings in a separate bin from the yogurt cartons. And again, the only answer to this continual currency debasement has only ever been a currency crisis and a reset since the first instances of an instrument of government policy some 3,000 years ago has never happened peacefully. And a quote. I love that line, by the way, satisfying ourselves that we're doing our bit by putting potato peelings in a separate bin from the yogurt cartons. Nice dig at the virtue signaling class. But the far more serious part is the statement that the only answer to this continual currency debasement has ever been a crisis in the currency markets, a reset, and it's never happened peacefully. Well, we're in a monetary crisis right now. Look at the massive gyrations in the currency market. You know, your paper dollars, my paper dollars, we buy less and less. I mean, because it no longer represents a store of value. In literally dozens of emerging market countries, the decline in purchasing power is crushing the population. Why? Because they purchase commodities, food, energy, denominated in U.S. dollars. I mean, they are in real trouble. But it's not just emerging market countries. Both the pound and yen have been in free fall in terms of purchasing commodities, especially oil and natural gas. Developed countries raising interest rates along with central bank intervention in the bond market in order to support their currency, but it's in an economic downturn. That's a recipe for failure or big-time inflation. This is the big picture, though, the big game, shaking the monetary system to its foundation. But go ahead. I guess people will ignore it. I hope you don't. But I can guarantee it's not going to ignore us. As for potential for war, come on, I'm still thinking I've got questions about the terrorist attack on Nord Stream 1 and 2. If that's going to escalate the current hostilities, has to be a red light event. But just keep in mind that protecting you is our focus on money talks and at the World Outlook Conference. And I implore you to not wait till things get worse. Tell your friends, your family, we all have to take, uh, pay attention. And stay tuned for Luke Groman. His team at Forest for the Trees has been a leader in warning of the consequences of bursting the first sovereign debt uh, bubble in 100 years. But I'll warn, the challenge for many people is that it's a global in nature. I think we do understand that when we put on the Russian sanctions, it reduced supply of both food and fertilizer and energy. Well, that, of course, increased prices. But more challenging is to understand the degree to which the credit and currency markets, banking system are all intertwined. You know, I know you're a regular listener of Money Talks listeners know that in November 2019, we started to warn about the monetary crisis that would hit this year. And I'm sure you're well aware of that. But I want to finish with a straightforward promo that I want to ask your help with. You know, we've got the upcoming World Outlook Conference in February. Martin Armstrong stated on this show a couple of weeks ago that his model show 223 is going to be even worse than this year. So because you are in the know, you're one of the people who've been paying attention. 
I hope you reach out to friends and family. I'm just so concerned about the period we're about to hit. Heck, I'm concerned about the period we're in right now, as you know. Uh, you appreciate, you know, some mortgage rate hikes for some people are going to be disastrous. Other things that are happening are going to be disastrous. Well, I think I want to invite you and say, join us on this. Help us out. Let's tell people. Let's bring them in. Tell them to listen to Money Talks, etc. Yeah, I know that benefits us, but I'm telling you, you'd be doing your friends and family a favor. And again, it's sort of, you've taken the time to learn about this stuff. We'll share it. Hey, stay tuned for Luke, but we also have Ozzy Jurek talking about the latest foray into uh, taxing your primary residence. We have a fantastic uh, Goofy Award, Quote of the Week. Uh, the list goes on. Shocking stat. We've got Michael coming up. We've got uh, Victor and Ozzy. All of that. Stay with us. I want to bring Mike Levy in for a subject that, well, we started on it a couple of weeks ago, but I want to further it because I've got a couple of questions and comments about it. Hey, Mike, a couple of weeks ago, we said, you know, with the falling uh, stock market, it was increasing dividend payouts. I mean, if I was getting five bucks on a $10 stock and now I'm still getting the five bucks on a $5 stock, hey, my dividend yield is better. And that, in the end, will protect prices at some degree. I mean, there's at some point, if you trust the dividend is going to get paid, you know, at some point, hey, that stock's got too cheap. And we're reaching that point in several areas there. And I just thought I'd want to get a little further into that because I had lots of questions about it. And I'll give you an example, Mike. I know that you, for example, have been looking at the Canadian banks. Why? Well, they've never missed a dividend. <laughs> you know, they're in a the great position and they pay their, you know, and they pay them out. So, and those yields are kind of getting interesting. So what are you seeing in the market that way? Well, a couple of things, Mike, and I know we talked about part of a portfolio should be solid div- companies with good dividends, but one size does not fit all. And I think that to me was the revelation when I started looking at dividends and what the banks pay and then take a looking taking a look at the underlying stock performance. Um, Conventional wisdom, obviously, is Canadian bank stocks. They're they're so solid. As you say, they've never missed a dividend. And as you know, Canadian bank stocks is something that in my own portfolio I favor. Well, give us an example. Like, I guess what you're saying is you can say you like the group, as you just did, but it doesn't mean all of them are equal, I guess, for, for lack of a better way of putting that. So give me an example from when you're looking at stuff. Well, Scotiabank uh, right now has a dividend of 6.21%. RBC, which is the best performer of the Canadian banks, has a dividend of 4.07%. Ergo, Canadian banks, safe, never missed a dividend. Growth is there, sometimes a little slower but why wouldn't I go for the 6.21%? But then you have to look at underlying performance. And I think that's really, really paramount. And we didn't talk about that last time when you said you closed off with go speak to your financial advisor. Well, here's an area you could discuss is what's the underlying stock worth? And uh, I think that's really important, Mike. And I also want to tell you a bit of a story about Scotiabank as we talk about this. Yeah, well, that, that's a great example because that's quite a discrepancy or differentiation in the, in the dividend payouts. As you say, 6% plus, man, that sounds in, incredible. And then you go, uh, and, but you might opt for the lower dividend. I mean, obviously, people have a perception that the Royal Bank is sort of a, a better investment, I guess. 
Well, you know, if you look at performance, um, Scotiabank has put up a total return, including dividends, of, uh, of about 57%. And I, 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 I'm going to put a time frame on this, Mike, because the CEO, the chief executive officer of Scotiabank, is gone and there's a new CEO coming in. So people are looking at the perspective of Mr. Porter going and um, uh, Brian Porter out and the CEO of, and listen to this, Finning Tractor is going to be the new CEO of Bank of Nova Scotia. So I took a look at Bank of Nova Scotia over a period of Mr. Porter's uh, tenure, tenure there and compared it to Royal Bank. Okay, let, come back for a sec. 57%, what was the time frame? From 2013 to 2022. We're talking nine okay. years, Mike. So and a total return with dividends of 57%. Do you have the numbers? Often, I, I, I hate to put you on the spot like this. Do you have the numbers for a comparative with like the Royal Bank? As you said, it's been well, considered well, the best performer. Yeah, 108% in the same time. I mean, that is not 57% to 62 or 65 because you look at a stock market and it's not a straight line. But when you look at a difference of what Scotiabank is to Royal Bank, I think you have to take into consideration not just the dividend. They're not going to miss a dividend, but is the underlying stock going to prefer, perform and add to the value of your portfolio while giving you that dividend? Yeah, that. Great points you're making here, and I'm glad you. We are going back to this because uh, that's important. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to be too critical, but it's easy when we only have a couple of minutes to sort of throw something out there. And and I still say the 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 the, the main point is that quality dividends are going to help support any stock in this environment. But your point is very well taken, uh, telling me go further, look further. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that's just a great point. And just to finish up, Mike, it's a, it, it's a pretty head-shaking uh, uh, undertaking that the board of Bank of Nova Scotia, Scotia Bank, has done. And I know you heard it, but I just want to repeat it. They are not promoting from within. Mm -hmm. The new fellow that's coming in, uh, Scott Thompson, is not a banker. CEO of Finning Tractor. Now, he was on the board, so he is an insider. He's been on the board for a lot of years. But the fact is, he's not a banker. And Mike, just to peel back the skin of the onion a little more, is that because they're doing this kind of a change, and because Mr. Porter did not perform as well as most of the other banks, it's not costing them a ton of money. Usually there's stock options and stock options that are going to vest and stock options, this and stock they get when they retire. That could add up in a bank of this size over this number of years to be 50, 75, $80 million. This is not costing anywhere near. Mr. Porter's going out with several million and the new guy is coming in and he's not a banker. So it's going to be so interesting to watch the dynamic of a non-banker in a Canadian bank because I don't know historically the last time that it happened. Darn, that was the reason I thought they didn't phone me, non-banker. So there you go. You just dispelled that, Mike. Mike, thanks very much. Have a great week. You too, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. But first, I better give you a little context. 
Klaus Schwab and elites from the world of politics and business and NGOs make up the membership of the World Economic Forum, whose goal is to bring all sectors to cooperate under the umbrella of more global government. It started in 1971, but the big thing was that it saw COVID as an opportunity to literally remake society. I mean, that's what they told us. Or as the founder, Klaus Schwab, labeled the Great Reset. You know what killed me, though, is so many in the media originally said, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. I mean, I'm going, are you kidding? Schwab and the World Economic Forum have been consistently upfront about the goals of the Great Reset. They'll give you a quick example, though. June 4th, 2020, on the World Economic Forum website, and it's Klaus Schwab and then Prince, now King Charles, they released a joint statement as to why we need, in their words, a Great Reset, stating fundamental changes to the capitalist system are needed. And by the way, Prime Minister Trudeau echoed that a couple months later. July, though, 2020, World Economic Forum, on their website, published an article called, To Build Back Better, We Must Reinvent Capitalism. Here's how. Uh, by the way, on July 14, 2020, Schwab released his book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. So in the same month, think about this. You had Democratic president, presidential candidate, Joe Biden. Of course, no, he's president. But he declared the slogan of the Democratic Party was, Build Back Better. Not long after, the UK's Boris Johnson and his government would build back better. Echoed shortly after by the European Central Bank's Christine Lagarde. In France, I mean, in, in August, Finance Minister Christia Freeland, the Prime Minister, you know it, said it's time to build back better. It's more than a stretch to suggest they all came up with the same slogan that happened to be pushed by the World Economic Forum by coincidence. I mean, give me a break. But it brings me to the quote of the week by Stephen Wilkinson. He's the author of the Pitchfork uh, Pitch Papers, as I mentioned earlier. In quotes, that ghastly Ahern and her Malthusian colleagues in Canada, Holland, UK, Italy, US, Germany, and every single international institution are singing from the same hymn book is without a doubt. Are they conspiring? Well, of course they are. Do they have a playbook? Of course they do. It is nonsense to pretend otherwise. The only question is, are you okay with their playbook or not? End of quote. I like that. The only question is, are you okay with their playbook or not? I mean, do you support the war on fossil fuels or the drastic reduction of fertilizer use along with li livestock reductions? Do you support the subjugation of national priorities and goals to global goals under the direction of the political, business, and NGO elites or not? You know what? Because sitting on the sidelines is no longer an option. I'd love to take credit for the timing of this, but I, I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to Luke Groman, Forest for the Trees, co-founder, president. But talk about a group that's been their finger on the pulse of what's going on. Uh, Luke's team looks at, well, sovereign debt. They look at entitlement challenges. They look at the currencies, looking at the energy interplay. I can't think of a better list of things to be focused on. And I think a bit lonely these days, but Luke Roman joins me now. Luke, really appreciate you taking the time. Couldn't think of a better week to do it, though. <laughs> that was, uh, sometimes better lucky than good, like they say, right? It was, uh, uh, it's, it's great to be here again, Michael, and, and it is very fortuitous timing. I, I wonder if, though, without looking at those things, I mean, I don't know how you could get a context, an analytical context that's valuable without looking at sovereign debt, for example, as an overhang. Like, 
how can you talk different policy approaches or talk, you know, whether we're talking interest rates? Well, you have to come back to the impact on the sovereign debt problem. Uh, currencies, obviously energy. That's the whole list right now. Uh, what do you think we're missing generally when we talk about this stuff? Uh, you know, I'm just talking, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. I'm just saying, if you say, yeah, but boy, you better consider this. I would say it's really the interplay between them. And what I mean by that is you have these extremely high levels of sovereign debt in the West in particular. Emerging markets went through their latest round of troubles uh, really in the, uh, in the late 90s and delevered significantly after that. So high levels of debt at the sovereign level are not necessarily problematic in and of themselves. However, they drastically reduce your, you know, it's kind of like having a house full of nitroglycerin isn't a problem per se uh, until your, your uncle who likes to smoke a lot of cigarettes and, and isn't exactly careful with the ashes comes over. Uh, and so you've got these extremely record high levels of sovereign debt in the West. And then on top of that, what that requires is, is you need consistent economic growth in order to service that debt. And not just, uh, not just economic growth, but really economic growth in excess of the interest rate on that debt. Otherwise, you go into basically a debt death spiral where the, the, the debt balance keeps rising faster than your, your ability to service it. There's a loss of confidence and, and, and then you have a, a crisis. Uh, so you've got to have the economic growth you, uh, above the interest rate uh, and just nominal GDP. It doesn't have to be real GDP. You just have to have nominal GDP growth above the interest rate to keep high levels of debt uh, sustainable and confidence in the system. So those are two factors that are that there's an interplay. But then when you factor in the third interplay, which is energy, uh, you need to have increasing supplies of energy at uh, an affordable price, at a price that doesn't cut the economic growth. Uh, so you basically need increasing supplies of cheap energy once you get uh, high levels of debt. Because if you have high levels of debt, you cannot afford to have high levels of inflation because if you have high levels of inflation, then you have this problem of uh, interest rates going up on high piles of debt and it very quickly leverage cuts both ways essentially. And so it, what I think people are most missing is this interplay among the three of where we are, which is we have all this debt. Okay, fine. But the problem is, is in order to drive the growth that we need to support, just to sustain the level of debt that we have, we need increasing amounts of energy, but to increase our energy supplies, the cheap energy is gone. And so all we're left with is increasingly expensive energy, which is fine, except increasingly expensive energy adds to inflation over time. So you need in high inflation to incent the production of higher cost energy to support the debt. But the problem is the higher cost energy filters through to inflation and creates a problem for the high car for the debt. And so we're in this unsustainable in between this rock and this hard place of we need more energy. The only energy we can increasingly produce is high cost energy, but high cost energy will blow up the debt market, but not producing the high cost energy will also blow up the debt market. And, and then when you layer the geopolitics on top of it, one of the biggest suppliers of cheap energy in the world, uh, we picked a fight with earlier this year in Russia. Uh, and in particular, you're seeing now what that has meant for the EU, for the UK, and for Japan.
Well, you know, one of the things also, just as you're, as you're saying, I'm thinking to myself, here we have the situation where we're raising interest rates into weakening economies. And, and Europe is, I'm not sure if that even does justice to their economy, calling it a weakening economy. They're in phenomenal trouble. And, and Ala, your expression, rock in a hard place. I mean, I don't see how that's working out for the good. How do you increase interest rates, which will slow down economic growth, which the central banks are well aware of? It's not like some surprise there. And I'm going, as you say, yeah, but you've got this big debt problem sitting over in the corner. You can't have weakened economic growth. So, yeah, I... I I'm not sure how we're getting out of this one. No, it's it's a playbook that should be very familiar to people that have spent time in or invested for long periods of time in emerging markets, which is what you're seeing out of the Fed, out of the ECB, out of the UK. They're defending their currency. Uh, when you're raising rates into uh, into a, a weakening economy to fight inflation, you're defending your currency, full stop. And that goes for the US as well. Yeah, the dollar's strong against these other energy-poor economies, uh, but what the Fed is doing is, in essence, defending the dollar from rising inflation because ultimately it's the same it's the same problem. Our debt levels are extremely high. And so they're trying to fight inflation to prevent to prevent rising inflation from driving rates up and rates driving being driven up, bankrupting the government. It's a there is no easy way out of it. There's 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 no painless way out of it at this point. Uh, you either have economic collapse and austerity, and when you get that, there's going to be a severe political cost that we're just starting to see the hints of in Italy over the weekend, for example. Uh, or you print the money and you just inflate it away, and 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 that too will have a political cost. And and so you really they're trying to figure out who's going to be the winners and the losers. And the Wall Street guys want the bond market to win, and Main Street and Jobs and. Uh, sort of the middle and working classes to lose again. Um, and you hear that in the Larry Summerses of the world and the, and the, and the William D uh, Bill Dudleys of the world in terms of we need to raise rates more, we need to raise rates more. Um, and what these guys are missing is that they're going to, you know, the U.S. government's debt position can't afford the, the rates they're talking about. And that's, that's the next aha moment. I think that'll come in the next two, three, four weeks where people go, wait a second, the rates that, that they're talking about taking rates to will bankrupt the U.S. government. Uh, without the Fed printing more money. But that's 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 still on the come. Well, I, I've been blown away also that you look at all the subsidy packages, you know, and, uh, you know, the UK subsidy package, I think they were the 40 billion pounds, but they're talking about uh, raising that. There's small business involved. I mean, the numbers are astronomical is my point, and every set of it's borrowed. You know, uh, every European country's involved in some level of subsidization now for, the, they call it the cost of living, they call it energy, it doesn't matter. How do you get out of that without it being you know, a huge devaluation of the currency. I mean, at some point, you can't print forever and not having it reflected somewhere, especially in the energy markets where that's kind of real. The energy is real. The paper isn't. That's the problem is, is this time it is intersecting with the real world uh, in the energy markets. You can print and extend and pretend in 08 and 01 and 98 because these were all paper financial markets. There was not an energy supply issue relative to the amount of paper currency being created. And this time... This time there is. You have an energy supply problem from the standpoint of peak cheap energy. This, the cheap stuff is gone. Um, and our policymakers are really acting like little kids, right? They're, they're acting like, like kindergartners. You know, if you go to a kindergartner and you ask them where your food comes from, they're going to tell you the grocery store. And that's, that's true. That's not really where the food comes from. That's really not how that steak or that hamburger that they like, uh, you know, at McDonald's, uh, where it comes from. And, uh, 
our policymakers really are approaching this with the mindset of kindergartners. Where's your energy come from? Well, from the pump. No. Well, from well, we're just going to cut out Russia because you know they're Russia bad. And and okay, where are you going to get your energy from? Well, from the pump. And you don't understand. <laughs> That's it's a very simplistic worldview, and it's it's cyclical, and it's 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 endemic across the West. You're seeing it in the U.S. You see it in Canada. You see it in um, amongst the politicians across the West. And I just I just shake my head and laugh, really. Well, I'd call that sugarcoating it, literally. <laughs> you know? No, but I mean. The astounding, and I've been saying on this show for a while, but how did they not know that wind and solar are intermittent? Like, you, you really think the sun shines every day? So what are you doing when it doesn't? And clearly, uh, Germany's answer was, oh, well, we buy Russian oil and gas. And you had President Obama, President Trump saying, oh, don't do that. Remember, they just went into Crimea. Remember, they just went into Georgia. You know, I mean, it's just astounding. So. I think you're insulting kindergarten children <laughs> because, I mean, well, look at Belgium uh, last week shutting down a nuclear plant that had an excellent safety record, 10% of their electricity. Oh, they don't actually have an alternative for that, you know, and you just go, what's up? And I you know, appreciate in California, they, they stopped the closing of Diablo Canyon. You know, that was a step in the right direction, but it's only one step. But everywhere else, you can really see and you have to scratch your head and going... You know, we had, uh, sorry, I'm going on and on because the list is too long, so I'll shut up. But <laughs> it really is too long of, of these kind of really head-scratching energy policy that has led us to where we are at this point. Yeah, and there's a lot of different, you, you can say, all right, maybe they're just dogmatic. Maybe they're just stupid. There's, uh, you know, Doomberg we were talking about before had a great piece where he pointed out, you know, it's like Charlie Munger said, you show me an incentive, I'll show you the outcome. Right. So when you have people like BlackRock incentivizing, controlling a significant amount of equity across U.S. markets and they are pushing ESG, they're effectively, if you look at what they're doing, uh, reducing fossil fuel usage in the West to free it up for China. So is, is it a case where China is? I mean, look, if I was China, why would I go to war in the Middle East to secure energy resources? It's expensive, and single-child policy means nobody wants their kid to die, and it's 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 a, a really difficult. But boy, you, for probably a couple hundred million dollars, you can start funding these ESG groups in the West, and they can start launching lawsuits at everybody, and and you can put some money with certain investment managers who really push an ESG agenda to, and then take a look at what China does. They're <laughs> they're buying up fossil fuel. I mean, it's brilliant. Very, very Machiavellian, I must say. Um, so I think there's an element of dogma, uh, lack of experience, practical experience. And I think some of it is, is, is actually pretty sinister stuff. I think we are being, uh, our, our systems being weaponized against us. Um, and it's not, you know, there've been some people talking more about that over the last couple of years. Um, but I think that I think that is part of the issue. And, and so at some point there has to be at some point there's going to be a reckoning. And the reckoning starts to come when you see in Europe it starts to get cold and there's no heat. You're going to be out of office. And, you know, Mary Poppins is not who's going to replace these people when 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 that happens. Well, we just, as you said, saw that in Italy, you know, this uh, this past week. And uh, again, in reaction, we've seen, uh, you know, we're burning our fuel bills down in Italy. We've seen that other places. You've seen the. Uh, the protests against high gas and uh, food prices in so many parts of the world. I mean, 
this is such a dynamic time. That's the other thing I sort of say. It's the old, I'm always talking, uh, my favorite quote is J.P. Morgan, you can ignore economics and politics trouble as they don't ignore you. Well, I think the climate change agenda is a fantastic example of that. The people sort of, the, you know, the pollster phones and yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That climate thing sounds good. Well, now we're getting the real nuts and bolts of it. You know, how about 12 times your energy bill? Does that sound good too? How about literally financing the invasion of Ukraine? Does that sound good? It, you know, all around. And I sort of shake my head, but I'm worried that now we're coming to a point, as you just said, winter's coming, but uh, I'm looking at the currency markets too. Uh, you know, and, and your your work looks at that overall sovereign debt challenge and financing that and interest rates. Yeah, I, I think we're in for a very, very uh, profoundly important time and, and soon. I'm not talking yeah, anymore. Wait five years. Oh, no, this is this is we are now, the boulders now rolling down the hill. And, you know, you can watch for a rule change um, by the policymakers or something drastic. But there's no stopping this thing now. Uh, there's nothing more powerful. It's one of the eighth wonders, you know, it's the eighth, so-called eighth wonder of the world, right? Compounding interest. And there's, 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 you know, what, what's, what's, what's the bank of England going to do? They're going to raise rates. You want to crash your real estate market. You want to like, you want to crash your economy. That's not going to work. Okay. Well, you want to print money. That's not going to work either. That's going to crash your bond market too. So you're, what are you going to do? Same with the Eurozone. Same, same with America for that matter. Um, Look, foreigners own $7.5 trillion in treasuries, and their currencies are weakening. They will sell treasuries till their hands bleed. And so there's been a whole group of people going, why isn't the long end of the U.S. Treasury curve getting a bid? Things are coming unhinged. All inflation has rolled over because it's a balance of payments problem. Foreigners own $7.5 trillion of treasuries. They are going to sell them until their hands bleed to raise dollars to finance their balance of payments problems, to buy energy, essentially. Uh, and so... Uh, this system, like you said, is that has been in place for the better part of 50 years. It's coming unhinged in real time as we speak. And I don't know what comes next, but it's now moving. It's not going to slow down, in my view. It's going to accelerate from here. Well, one of the themes on Money Talks has been, uh, from a Canadian perspective, just own U.S. dollars every chance you get. Every time we have a little weak thing, and we've done that since 2014 for a lot of reasons. But now I'm looking at the danger of that, both... How about U.S. exports when you have a dollar up that high? Emerging markets who are importing energy, well, they're done. You know, that's not doable. And then I'm looking, uh, and I know you guys have done lots of work on this, but man, I'm looking what happens in Japan. Like their desperation to keep that balance. Uh, what if interest rates go up in Japan? I can't even imagine the bond losses there. You know, everything's oh, been yeah, negative can. for they 30 can. years. Yeah, they'll print They'll print whatever it takes. And they'll, they'll I mean, that bond market's already not trading and, you know, for a couple of days at a time last week, for example. Um, so, I, I, yeah, this is where this is where they are. And so ultimately, where this is going to go is the Fed is basically going to have to bail out all the other central banks. The Fed is going to have to put the euro dollar market on its balance sheet. And that means well, the Fed's balance sheet will go from, I don't know, wherever it is today, eight point seven trillion to. 20, 30, 40 trillion dollars in a compressed span of time. And that's just what's going to happen. And it is what it is. So it's for me, it's you want to own dollars. You want, and we've been selling our clients for five, six months. Look, if you're managing a monthly book, you should be in all cash. Uh, but we've been raising cash for uh, just, you know, the average investor, raise cash, raise cash, raise cash, maintain your core. But, but we're, not, we're not selling the core portfolio of gold, energy, industrials, 
uh, a little bit of Bitcoin because there's no mystery how this is ending. The, 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 the Fed's balance sheet is going to explode higher, and when it does, inflation will follow. Uh, but until then, yeah, the only thing you can really own is a dollar. As I say, so many things coming on. I mean, I'm looking also at Great Britain because it's a 37-year low, you know, for their pound. Uh, and again, they're out there buying energy. You know, they're out, what I found interesting is they're raising rates and the, do and the pound, excuse me, keeps falling. You know, that's I know it's a simplistic thing to say rates go up and your, your currency can come with it. But it is also noteworthy when that isn't happening. You know, <laughs> yeah, so. that's it's yeah, there's two things that drive currencies, right? It's it's relative rates and it's balance of payments and the balance of payment. If you're raising rates a lot and your currency is still falling, your balance of payments are, are dominating. And that's what we're seeing. And what's driving their balance of payments is energy. So the, the British tend to be pretty pragmatic uh, as a nation. And so you've seen them turn around and try, start trying to uh, uh, they repealed the fracking ban. Uh, that is one way they could solve their problems. I don't know that that's going to happen very fast. Um, there's other things they can do, and I think this is where this is going to go, which is um, once the British populace feels enough pain, uh, and the Europeans and the Japanese, they're going to call up uh, Russia, and they're going to say, we're sorry, and we are going to leave the U.S. We're going to reach a detente with Russia, and we are going to see if you will take British pounds to sell us gas. And Vladimir Putin will say, of course I will. And you will have a reordering of the global uh, post-war order uh, based on energy needs and real politic uh, because, you know, running on high inflation in a collapsed economy where people freeze at night is not a political platform that anyone anywhere, but especially in the West, can run on. Hey, but you wonder if it's avoidable. You know, at the, at this stage, they've made so many mistakes. Whether it's yeah, natural it gas into fertilizer, and uh, you know, the list goes on. You had mentioned earlier. Uh, it, it's interesting in the emerging markets. I mean, how much money was borrowed in U.S. dollars? Well, I don't see how that gets paid back. I mean, you know, if I if I if I've got a currency like the Argentinian peso or something that's fallen so dramatically, Ecuador. I mean, the list is a long one. I think I counted up 101 countries that had had tremendous problems. So that's not getting paid back, and I'm sort of trying to. Think through how that ripples through the system because somebody lent them the money. It's it, there's there's two ways it's going to work. They're either going to collapse or they are going to de-dollarize their. Uh, they're going to do what Russia did. Look what the ruble did against the dollar. As soon as Russia said rubles only for our oil and gas, mm -hmm. rubles spiked. I, I could stop the Canadian dollar from falling tomorrow if I was uh, Mr. Trudeau. Only accept Canadian dollars for your for your oil and gas. Make the Americans pay Canadian dollars. Watch what happens to the Canadian dollar. Boom. You know, the Europeans call the Russians up. We're sorry. Relaunch Nord Stream 2. We'll pay in euros. We're leaving the Americans. Boom. Euro will take up. They're going to have to. Or their, their, their economies will collapse. It's, it's, it's harsh, but that's just... Now, there's, there is a... If, if they come up with a, a, a fusion miracle, or if we, you know, if there's a coup in mm -hmm. Russia where we reinstall a Yeltsin who's willing to basically sell out the Russian people uh, to Western interests for pennies on the dollar, then sure, that could happen. But uh, I don't think that's likely at this point. Uh, and by the way, you won't be aware of this, but uh, it's funny, the media didn't make near enough of it. In our federal election campaign last uh, August, September, um, the prime minister was asked about the Bank of Canada. He said, you'll have to forgive me. I don't think about monetary policy. 
And I'm just, I know, see, <laughs> people aren't seeing you. You're laughing. I know, it, like, unbelievable in a world that is the kind of dynamics we're seeing. I mean, the monetary issues that we're seeing at this point. Let's come back to the individual, though, and you alluded to it, but uh, the place of gold, for example, uh, and we're talking not traders, we're talking is, is that a longer term position in order to protect ourselves, at least to some degree? I mean, Oh, I think it's at this point, based on what you're seeing, I think it's irresponsible not to have five to 10% of, of your liquid assets in physical gold held out of the financial system. So in other words, not in banks. Uh, I probably don't need to tell that to the Canadian listeners in terms of the risks of holding things in banks uh, after what transpired earlier this year there, which surprised even me. But um, you know, I wouldn't hold it in your house, but there are non-bank vaulting services uh, that, that can store that for you. But I would want to hold physical physical gold because um, you are looking at the early days of the indictment of the Western sovereign bond market. And there's a chance that every day that passes that they don't act aggressively to fix this increases the odds that they aren't going to be able to fix this without a really bad calamity. And ultimately... Um, really bad calamity, what that looks like is, is uh, widespread sovereign defaults, uh, either in nominal or real terms, which we've been expecting them to be in real terms. But now we're starting to see the possibility they could be happening in nominal terms, quite frankly. In other words, you know, you own a million dollars in U.S. Treasury bonds. And then if they don't take action, if the Fed continues to stand aside too long, you look at something where, hey, we're going to renegotiate those. You're only going to get 80 cents on the dollar. Um, and I do not think that's going to happen. I do think there will be countries quite possibly where that could happen. However, that's the environment we're now in because it's pretty simple math. You look at these debt loads, you look at where the rates are in the West. We're at rates that, that these Western governments cannot afford, full stop. They can't afford what they're currently spending on plus the incremental interest burden. It's the same burden as the average household in some of these places. Well, and I remember, of course, going back uh, over a decade with the Greek situation where the, that's where I became familiar with the uh, extend and pretend. I mean, they literally did that in Greece where they said, oh, oh, you remember that five-year bond you used to have? Oh, you got it. It's a 20-year bond. You know, right. I mean, the terms uh, certainly changed. And yep. I think we have a lot of precedents for that in other areas. You know, Absolutely. the old government can do what it wants. Uh, what about stocks at this point? I mean, are you just standing clear? You said earlier about cash uh, or cash. Tactically, yes. Yeah, tactically, I'm still building cash. I'm not putting any new money to work. Um, I've been holding core positions in energy and in, uh, in U.S. industrial stocks uh, because ultimately on the other side of this, I think you're starting to see a reshoring action in the U.S., um, you know, we can commodities around, especially those facing energy, ag, uh, electric vehicles uh, type metals. Uh, these are places we've been for the last several years. So um, they're not they've had a very bad five months, six months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, our cash has done fine. Um, but uh, ultimately, uh, I'm not a day trader. Uh, if I've been a day trader, I mean, all cash and short. Um for, for, for at least four or five months now, but I just, it's been about raising cash, holding our core gold position, holding our core gold miner position, holding our core Bitcoin position, looking at some, um, uh, some, some different private equity investments in, in uh, one of which is, uh, electrical, uh, transmission and distribution, you know, type of, of, of projects. So, 
Um, still very much interested in looking at certain investments, but right now it's about managing managing risk until you see some sort of rule change. Uh, the, this the boulder's now rolling down the hill, and it's not going. You know, you stand in front of it, you don't stop it, you just get run over by it. So it's really about managing your capital and and being risk averse at this point, in my view. With um, uh, just one more thing. Um, with rising interest rates of central banks, I mean, they're obviously, I mean, their track record has been abysmal. I mean, it's just, this is a track record business. Forest for the Trees has had a great track record. The Federal Reserve's had a terrible track record. Uh, I don't think you employ 400 PhDs, do you? Uh, that might be a little hint for you. Don't. But uh, obviously, they got inflation wrong, and I'm, I'm being glib about it. But, but they're looking at this now. And do you see it? And I'm not talking in the pivot sort of way that, oh, that'll make my portfolio feel better. It's just the fundamentals that you've presented here. They literally can't afford to see these rates continue to go up. They can't afford, pensions can't afford to have the bond side of their portfolio do such a, do so disastrously without what I, le- I read, what, $8.3 trillion in unfunded state pension liabilities. So that can't get worse. So do you see them halting because of those kinds of things? Like saying, wait a second. Um, we just can't go further. I think that's why it's going to happen. You're already seeing treasury market dysfunction. But look, right now, pro forma, uh, U.S. US federal interest expense will be 160% of the defense budget next year. Uh, and uh, tick for tick, that was just goes up a lot. And receipts are going to be going down, right? So you're going to be looking at a U.S. economy where interest expense alone next year could be 30% of, of tax receipts with just a mild recession, if you have a real economic calamity, like it looks like we're heading toward, you can be talking about U.S. federal interest expense that is 35, 40% of tax receipts. I mean, that you're really getting into emerging market debt crisis levels there. And oh, by the way, that does not include uh, the the uh, entitlements, which are basically interest expense. And those are already 75% of all-time record tax receipts. So you're you're going to be in this realm where your effective interest expense in the United States, the reserve currency issuer, well above 100% of tax receipts next year. Um, and perversely, that will be really, really good for the dollar if the Fed doesn't monetize it. But it's going to be really, really bad for the treasury market. You will get the dollar to just rise nonlinearly. You will get U.S. interest rates that will rise. You'll, you'll see 1979, 1980-like interest rates in the United States if the Fed doesn't step in. Uh, and that will break the world. It will break the U.S. It will basically force the U.S. government to slash all defense spending, um, entitlements. Like, and that's where this is going. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the choice that that the political calamity around that is so catastrophic for the entrenched interests in Washington that I think they'll make the second worst calamity, which uh, a choice, which is the Fed will have to print the money, buy the bonds at at, at ex- politically expedient levels. And inflation will take off. You're going to be. I think. I still think you're going to be at double-digit inflation in the United States this time next year, because of that. Wow. Well, and again, we're talking debasement of the currency. You know, I mean, at that point, people are not going to want to hold dollars when it's getting printed up. The euros are getting printed up, as they say, just through these uh, bailout or subsidy programs. You know, for energy. My God, what's going on in Japan? You know, makes my head spin. <laughs> like defending that interest rate. Uh, worried about the currency rate. The list is a long one there. Yeah, I think that's, and I'm really glad you guys do a great job of sort of bringing that forward. That's the task forward. And that's why, uh, yeah, for me, it's a, you got to figure out a way of protecting your buying power somehow, you know. It's all about that. That's right. Yeah. 
And so, again, back to your comments about gold, you know, silver, just anything. That's going to be the debate anyways. That's what, what, what different analysts or different investors are going to have to decide how to protect themselves that way. Yeah, and I think you just spread it around, right? You want some cash because who knows? If they stand aside and do nothing, you're going to see the paper price of gold head towards zero. Um, you'll ultimately see the physical premiums separate from paper and then probably vastly outstrip anybody's wildest dreams. But um, yeah, if the Fed just stands aside and decides they want to let this whole thing burn down, you know, then it's cash. And then you start getting into very uncomfortable prepper type conversations around essentials, medications, et cetera, uh, because that's something else people aren't talking about is, listen, as the European and, and Japanese and, and UK economies break down, global supply chains are going to re-break down. And as that happens, your inflation is going to take off. And so now what's the Fed going to do? They're going to keep tight. Like they're this is, Again, it all comes back to the sovereign debt context. Your operating room is just de minimis. You have no operating room to do what you want to do, to do what you need to do. Ultimately, it all keeps coming back to keep the debt from defaulting and to keep the debt from defaulting, you have to print. But you hold that cash because you don't know how long it is until they have to start printing to prevent the debt from defaulting. But we can handicap it by watching what rates are doing. The higher rates go, the faster rates go higher, the sooner that's going to have to happen. Well, as I say, there's so much food for thought there. It's a banquet. <laughs> Luke, Luke and I, I appreciate your time. We've kept you a little longer than we said. And I know you're, you've been in a very busy schedule. And I want you to sincerely know how much we appreciate you finding time. I think Absolutely. what you're doing at Forest for the Trees, uh, trees FFTT.com, is uh, absolutely essential work, you know, to protect people because government's not protecting people. You know, uh, <laughs> individuals need protection and need help in understanding what the uh, community is. And they can follow you on Twitter. And I'd also recommend they go to YouTube because you do your, your YouTube spots. You just have to put Luke's name in, Luke Groman there or at Luke Groman for uh, the Twitter account, et cetera. Uh, great stuff as always. And uh, we hope to visit again in the near future. I'll phone you tomorrow. We'll go again. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Luke. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It was great talking to you. Time now for this week's shocking stat. But first, a little reminder, you know, a federal budget is presented by government to forecast how much money and where that money is going to be spent in the next fiscal year. But public accounts, that's different. They're tabled to show us, hey, where the money was actually spent. So here we are, eight months into the new fiscal year, and the federal government has not provided the public accounts to let us know where the money was spent last fiscal year. I mean, the shocking part. Ready? We're talking about over $600 billion, which means we still don't know the final deficit number for fiscal 2020-21, but it is estimated to be in the neighborhood of a staggering $354 billion. But we don't know how the borrowed money was actually spent. As the Globe and Mail reports, Kevin Page, former parliamentary budget officer, he's now president CEO of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, states in quotes, they should be at the front end of the current four-week sitting. That is a standard practice and a good practice. I'm not really sure there's any reason not to have that. I'm sure that the work is done on the public accounts and there's no reason not to table it. He goes on to say that knowing how the money is spent informs the debate over this year's spending. And maybe he nails it when he says, it's information that can be used to hold the government to account. Maybe that's why we're not seeing them. <laughs> 
Former Newfoundland and Labrador Auditor General, she's now a senator, Elizabeth Marshall says, government can put whatever number it wants into a budget. That is so true. They can tell you they're spending X, Y, and Z on all your pet projects. But you have to know, did it happen? Where the money was actually spent. Far more important. In the meantime, the government now wants $8.7 billion more for new spending before Parliament and the Canadian public knows where the shocking $635 billion went last fiscal year. Hey, if you're one of the 10 million Canadian households who own a home, now that's households, that's more people, it's taking a whole household, you're going to be interested in what I want to start with, Ozzy Jurekas. It's like waving a red flag in front of, or a red cape in front of a bull when I read this kind of stuff. But let me bring Ozzy in first and we'll explain. Ozzy, did you see that quote by Paul Kershaw? He was uh, part of the team that headed one of the latest, but three separate CMHC studies on taxing our primary residents. And basically he's saying, hey, come on, ante up. It's the patriotic thing to do. Yes, you should demonstrate allegiance by paying more tax. The funny thing is that you and I discussed this for two years. It kept being denied, sort of keeps rearing its ugly head. It's being denied, but money is given, 450000 in fact, given to UBC uh, to study that and other things on how to uh, tax uh, wealth, you know, that sort of the thing. And the trial balloon was flown in January when Kershaw actually came out with a report that had a, essentially saying that anybody that owned a home at a million plus would have some sort of a tax, whether you made money or not. And, and the funny thing is that now this Step Up organization, which under the Freedom of Information Act, got some emails that were exchanged between Mr. Kershaw and CMHC and people that didn't like Mr. Kershaw, and it's quite an interesting read. Uh, well, let me come back to this, though, is that, uh, as we made the point before, you know, if this wasn't being considered, why have you done your third study? Why are you spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, as you just said, 450000 to fund the latest research study? I mean, w- w- there's no explanation for that. Uh, the other thing, and I think it's just so important, we're not talking about if somebody, um, it's not a, you know, if it's an investment property you buy and sell, of course you pay capital gains. Your primary residence, so that's sort of been part of the social contract. You know, if you get a home, you save, you pay your mortgage, you pay your property taxes, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then that's one area the government's not going. But to be honest, I can see why some people are suspicious, those three studies, but also, come on, we were promised there'd be no vaccine mandates aggressively by the prime minister. And five months later is when the poll changed, he changed. Well, and the thing is, it goes to the essence of who we are in Canada. And my view is that the home ownership is the backbone of the country. It's why the world's immigration officers are piling up with people that want to be here. And there seem to be always people that want to rattle the cage, you know, because there is some money to be taxed. And you and I talked about it before. They will tax you on things you didn't even know you had. I wrote about it extensively in my OSPAS blog, you know, that that the, the thing is, it's always this umbrella of, of, of being good, you know, and this is where Kershaw came in. I mean, he's quite astounded the, the the people's reaction. He says the reaction was kind of vitriolic when he said that he wanted to tax $5.8 billion on home equity, right? He says it's a jungle out there because a tax would really narrow inequality. I mean, let's face it, these homeowners are rich people. They should help. Yeah. I, what's I, sorry? I'm I'm going to sort of digress for a second, but he's one of the go-to guys that the media calls on. 
uh, not just, you know, not for this story, which specifically rated for him, but something about real estate. And I'm always thinking that it's just incredible. Uh, he's allowed to have his philosophical opinion for sure. Of course. Uh, but his philosophical opinion is it's never enough. It's never, I mean, people scrimp, save, pay, pay taxes to save up for a down payment to get into the market, you know, yep, and yep. Uh, whether you make money or not, and let's face it, nobody's been making money in the last seven months with significant declines in asset value. You notice nobody from government starts or these kinds of people start saying, you know, we should maybe give them a break only on the plus side. Do they want them? They don't want to help them on the downside. Uh, and it, so it is a philosophical difference. And people better, you know, as part of my editorial earlier, if you're not paying attention, you better be careful. You know, uh, stuff is happening that is a direct assault on your net worth, you know. And so pay attention to this. That's why I thought this was so noteworthy. Third study. Are you kidding me? Uh, let me throw one more at you. Sorry, I went on there, Ozzy. But I'm sort of thinking somewhere Klaus Schwab is smiling. Well, yeah, of course, he is the one, of course, that was heading the World Economic Forum that organizes an annual summit of the world's wealthiest and most powerful people. And sort of, you know, it's never really quite clear exactly how he wants to bring a new world order, but they want a new world order, healthier, equitable, more prosperous, and responsible capitalism. And certainly those people that some of them have a conspiracy theory think that they're really out to get us. You know, they want to make, in, in essence, take away from uh, the middle class and give it sort of more distributed. Uh, it, it, is, it is crazy. I should mention, though, Mike, that Trudeau has said on September 8, 21, that we will not tax home equity. The only question I have is, why do we keep studying it? Well, I, I, I'm with you, but I'm also going to throw back what I said. In January 2020, when he says, this is not the kind of country to do vaccine mandates. You know, I, I'm not going to hold, you know, I mean, they have to be responsible for the statements they make. Um, but, uh, but again, I think this is part of the ongoing debate that people have to be engaged in. If you don't like this, say so. If you want it, say so. But they can get you a lot of other ways. Let's face it. I mean, the NDP wants a wealth tax. That's something in this direction. Uh, you know, if you're out in British Columbia listening, be, uh, you know, you know what a speculation tax is, which the BC Green Party, which was a partner in government at the time, said, hey, that's a tax grab. You know, uh, you know about empty home taxes. The bottom line is, as we've said, and I think correctly so, you know, the real estate is where most of us have our net worth. That's where we have most of our money. I mean, some people are lucky that it's not, but it pays a significant portion for anyone. Government needs money. Real estate's clearly already been a target and who knows what'll happen in the future. But, and you're so right, Mike. And I think we as homeowners, and there's about close to 68% of us that are either paying towards our home or own our home outright, you know, we always sit in quietly. We can't sit quietly anymore. There's an election coming up in BC too, and you should really read what some of the candidates are proposing. Okay, let's switch to this. And something I, I wanted to ask you, because it was a little question I wrote down. I'm noticing that uh, this is real estate related, of course, but a, a different subject. And that is changes by some developers to your pre-sale contract. And I know that's the kind of thing you follow in Ozbuzz, et cetera, but I wanted you to clear it up for me. Well, just in essence, you know, people always worried about pre-sale. I kind of like them because you fix today's price so that you maybe have a better price when the building is finished. So you pay today 
And I thought, well, if you pay today, you're fixing today. The developer fixes today's costs. Any smart developer does. And so in a 7% in inflation environment, and let's say five years extrapolated, you could be the cost could be 30% higher. So it's still today, if you look at, you can get as much as 5% down. They give you 5% rebates. Uh, they even, you might even get a car and all those kind of things. Maybe not, not a bad thing to do because you're not closing until five years. But not so fast, because we now hear that some developers are contemplating or have implemented a clause which allows the developer to increase the price during construction. Well, that would defeat the whole point. Yeah, and I mean, that's a huge warning. And I mean, if you're considering this, you know someone is, I guess the message is, Ozzy, read the damn thing. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, and they'll put that somebody, on your radar. Yeah, you know. we'll get somebody that understands it. Yeah. Look, we sign mortgage agreements and so on. We never read anything, but this no. is important. What's the focus on cost increases? What are the assignment clauses? What possible penalties? And how much could they increase the, 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 if the costs go up? So, so you know, these are important things uh, for you to consider. Well, great stuff. And I know that's, as I say, you do that on OzBuzz, <coughs> OzBuzz.ca. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. And I just want to thank all the listeners that purchased our video of the Landrush conference we just recently had. And I just want to tell everybody that we are up updating by Zoom the, the video website that, that you've purchased. Uh, next upcoming week, we talk about the September numbers. And then at the end of the month, we talk about the new interest rates that we'll be facing. So last weekend to buy the video. Okay. They can go. Uh, where do they do that, Ozzy? Just LandrushCanada.com, LandrushCanada.com. Oh, sorry, I should have read my tattoo. I have that tattooed on me. So <laughs> LandrushCanada.com. Have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Let's go live to the trading desk. I've got to bring Victor Dare in at the kind of week. Uh, and I've been saying this a lot, Victor, that... I've got about 25 stories I'm following. You know, it's, I've never felt this way before that I've got to keep an eye, you know, it could be on geopolitical tension, Taiwan, obviously Russia, Ukraine, but it could be the interest rate market. This past week for me, it was what was going on in, in Great Britain, the, the threat to their pension system because of leverage, you know, the pound, European, or sorry, the um, central bank jumping in. You know, all I'm saying is everywhere I look, there's a big story happening out there. What's jumping out for you? I'd say in a word, Mike, it's stress. I mean, the market feels stressed and it feels also like it, it could get, get worse really quickly. That's what it feels like. But, you know, get a background here. I mean, for a couple of decades, the market felt that the Fed had their back. You know, they, they, there was the Fed put. If, if things started to get rough, the Fed would throw money at the problem again. But lately, and we've been talking about this, the most important thing for the financial markets is that the Fed is determined to move interest rates aggressively higher. They've made that so clear, like come hell or high water. And we're, people are saying, hey, we got high water, you know, and hell's just around the corner. Be careful what you're doing. And so the Fed's trying to get inflation down and they're trying to break the back of inflation expectations. And it's like they're going to, the way they talk, that's the only thing they're focused on. There are these other problems and things can get rocky. Uh, yeah, it's interesting there, though, because there was so much debate over several years about whether the Federal Reserve was acting like they were the, the, you know, the central bank of the world, like they were concerned if their move impacted Japan, their move impacted third world nations, etc. As you're saying, it looks pretty clear that from what their statements are and their actions have been, one of the big changes in psychology for the market has been, oh, no, they're only concerned with U.S. 
based inflation at this point or other things are only tertiary to them. Yeah, that, that seems to be exactly what's going on. They're very, very focused on that. I mean, the, the U.S. bond market has had its worst year ever. You know, the, the rise here uh, since the beginning of the year has been really steep. And two thirds of that move have come just in the last two months. Like there's there's an acceleration of the distress happening here. Now, I know you were saying when we last talked that maybe we're being too gloomy or whatever. I'm just focusing on what I see here. We've got the Dow, you know, the lowest levels. We've had the, the major stock market indices since Biden was elected. Uh, the Dow's down about 22% from all-time highs, and that's the Dow. Individual stocks, are, some of them are, are much weaker than that. And there seems to be, from the Fed's perspective here, no let-up in sight. They, they still got the pedal, uh, brake pedal firmly jammed to the floor. I, yeah, and I think people have got to be fully appreciative of the losses in the bond market have superseded the headlines from the stock market, which has not been pretty. You know, I appreciate that. But the bond market's done worse. And as you say, worst ever. Yeah, and it's the two things together. You know, we've talked about the 60-40 bond port stock portfolio. Uh, this is an unusual circumstance to have both the bond market and the stock market down hard at the same time. So far, you know, the, the big pools of capital don't seem to be... Uh, aren't experiencing anyway, people running away, you know, get me out. Not, we're, we're not seeing that kind of selling. But it, it's, a, it's a grind lower and people are worried that we could get worse. Uh, just one thing. Uh, we talked, uh, I think it was last week, a little bit about the pressure on pensions. I mean, obviously, if you've got the double whammy of stocks falling and bonds falling, you know, inside the pension portfolio, but now let's cross-reference that with those pensions that are underfunded. You know, uh, that's again, I just want to put that on people's radar. You know, that's that's another issue brewing. So, yeah, it's hard to ignore when you look out the window and there's 45 accidents happening at the same time. Well, you, you might wonder, even just as simple as this, we've got Hurricane Ian has uh, done huge damage down there. Insurance companies are going to be writing big checks. Where do they get the money from? You know, they, they go into their portfolio of assets and sell some assets. So there's that. Then you have the obvious sabotage on the pipelines under the Baltic Sea, the Nordstrom uh, pipelines. What's that all about? Uh, we have just a lot of different stress here. And I think folks are just backing away from taking risk. I don't blame them. I certainly, that's what I'm doing myself. Uh, the Canadian dollar is down five cents here in three weeks. We're at a 29 month low in the Canadian dollar. And last year, I remember the early part of last year, the Canadian dollar was the strongest currency in the world. We're going up against everything, including the U S there's a lot of things moving here. And, uh, if I could not want to miss this point, the Bank of England this week did a 180 and they did it like as fast as you could snap your fingers when it became apparent that the pension fund industry in the UK was under real stress because of what's happened with stocks and particularly bonds. They went from doing quantitative tightening to doing quantitative easing in a day. And I think that foreshadows what could happen if something nasty or something systemic breaks, the Fed could also make a really quick change here in their tune. 
But, but also what happened in England, as you say, one minute they're saying, we're going to withdraw money from the system. The next minute they're going, I'm going to buy bonds to keep those interest rates down. You know, I, I think that's representative of, of the kind of environment, the stressful environment we're in. I got to finish with this. So Vic, a quick word about gold, because yeah, yeah certainly stress is rising. I don't think we're going to get any debate on that. People are concerned, no debate on that. But gold hasn't been the recipient of those worries. You know, gold did uh, make a new 30-month low this week, but turned actually closed the week higher. Um, we've been chronicling this for so long. You know, the very strong dollar is bad news for gold. Real interest rates have just skyrocketed here the past couple of weeks or so. I think we're at a, an 11-year high on, on two-year uh, reels in the United States, and that's been toxic for gold. But I think the when I look around and I say, if the U.S. dollar is overdone, and I, what do I what do I want to do? Do I want to buy Deutschmarks or Swiss francs? I shouldn't say Deutschmarks, euros or Swiss francs or British pounds. Or and I think you know something. I could see where gold could get a bid here, just as uh, an alternative to some of the other things that people could get into if they thought the U.S. dollar had gone too far too fast. Well, that's what we'll be chronicling as we look forward, Vic. In the meantime, I want you to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Great stuff there, Vic, and thanks very much. Mike, always a pleasure talking with you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and it goes to Jugmeet Singh and the federal NDP, I'm sitting here shaking my head for introducing legislation this week, we've seen it before, that would lower the voting age to 16. That is a truly Hall of Fame bad idea. Co-recipients of the Goofy, though, have to go to the bill's supporters from the Bloc Quebecois, Green MPs, as well as 20 Liberals. I mean, the lamest argument I've heard in favor was presented by one of the bill's sponsors, BC NDP member Taylor Bacharach, who stated in quotes, Right now, young voices, I believe, are particularly important because they have such a stake in the future, especially now, especially on issues like climate change. Well, come on, following that logic, let's give 10-year-olds a vote. Hey, a 7-year-old, they're certainly equally impacted. They have a stake in the future. And keep in mind, we have special permission has to be obtained for a 16 or 17-year-old to be tried in adult court. Why? Because it's assumed they're not capable of making adult decisions. We don't let them buy marijuana because research shows their brains aren't fully developed. And to be fair, obviously, neither are the brains of the politicians who are pushing this idea. But arguably more noteworthy is that this approach, this legislation reflects a reckless unseriousness about the issues we face today. We are living in the most precarious social, economic, financial environment in generations. And these people want to put grade 10 or 11s who, due to their age, have not raised a family, don't pay income tax, virtually all live under their parents' roof. They want to put them in a decision-making role on a $600 billion federal budget, deficit of 155 forecast this year. My bet is that, by the way, those same MPs supporting the bill certainly don't let their 16-year-old make financial decisions for the whole family. Do you really think they're letting the 16-year-old decide which mortgage to get or the financing options on a new car? Nope, but they'll do it for the country. You know what? Just one other thing. I mean, for decades, I had the joy and privilege of volunteering with 16 and 17-year-olds, and I never met one who understood how the tax system works, understood the implications of block funding for hospitals, or what an unfunded pension liability is. 
no understanding of the, the cost of supply management or even what it is. And certainly not to the disastrous impact of the no fossil fuels climate agenda, including the push to limit the production of ammonia and urea through natural gas, which has raised fertilizer prices and is going to lead to starvation. No, these are the issues in the news today. So which one specifically do 16 and 7 year olds have sufficient knowledge to make an informed decision? Well, you know what? The funniest line during the parliamentary debate was made inadvertently by the Calgary uh, Conservative MP, Tom Kamiak, who stated he feared lowering the voting age to grade 10 would politicize high schools. Are you kidding me? Where have you been? I mean, more politicized than they are today, especially when it comes to the social justice agenda like climate change. But what's clear is that these are truly the most unserious people in the country. I mean, the evidence clearly shows, as I said at the outset, these times financially, economic, and socially are unprecedented in well over half a century. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. And by the way, I had several notes from people, and I truly appreciate when they recommend money talks to their friends. I think they're doing them a service, though, in this kind of an environment, but I really appreciate it. I appreciate it when they go to mikesmoneytalks.ca or put people on to uh, Money Talks tweets, join us on uh, social media like that, and of course, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. So it's an important time, and as I say, I very much appreciate that you share uh, the direction we're going in Money Talks, which is just simply, you've got to have as much information as you can to make uh, really informed opinions. Go out and have a great week. Thanks for listening. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.